1: Greetings to all of our WLRN listeners. We are excited to continue to bring you this handcrafted, collectively produced, radical feminist radio show for another month this Thursday, February 7th, 2019. I am Damayanti, frequent volunteer with WLRN's World News Department. I am really excited for today's edition because of what the existence of a grassroots feminist organization that continues to unapologetically center women means for women across the world especially in the current political climate of gender ideology and especially for those of us still learning the ins and outs of feminist activism. This month, we focus on the Vancouver Rape Relief Centre, a highly effective grassroots feminist organization that has lasted through years of misogynistic backlash since its founding in 1973. Generous support from a broad coalition of people in Vancouver has helped keep the centre functioning for over 40 years. We will hear Robin interview one of its founding members, Lee Lakeman, who is still involved with the centre today. We will also hear an interview Julia did with Laurel McBride, a member of the Rape Relief Feminist Collective. Julia recorded the interview when she was there in Vancouver as a guest at the Rape Relief Center's Montreal Massacre event, held annually at the Vancouver Public Library. WLRN members Thistle and Julia attended the Vancouver Rape Relief's annual Montreal Massacre Remembrance event in December And Laurel gave Julia a tour of the shelter. Vancouver Rape Relief is Canada's oldest rape crisis centre. They campaign for autonomous women's organising, women's economic independence via guaranteed livable income, pressing the state to uphold its commitment to women's equality and demanding the criminal justice system hold men accountable for their violence. Today's podcast closes with another thoughtful, moving commentary by WLRN's resident female separatist, segment She Hour. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics and beyond, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. To start off today's edition, here is women's news from around the globe for this Thursday, February 7th, 2019. With almost 15,000 views on YouTube, Megan Murphy's talk on gender identity ideology and women's rights on January 10th at the Vancouver Public Library is historic for breaking the silence about the differences between gender and sex. The talk featured writer, journalist, and founder of feminist current Megan Murphy, longtime feminist activist, writer, and co-founder of the Vancouver Rape Relief Center Lee Lakeman, and indigenous feminist and co-founder of the Aboriginal Women's Action Network Faye Blaney. It was moderated by Mary Lee Buma and included an extensive Q&A with the speakers. 300 people attended. And despite warnings of severe protests and backlash, the event took place with neither major incident nor interruption from trans activists. WLRN received reports of about 100 people gathered outside of the library chanting trans women are women, but they were peaceful and did not try to sabotage the talk going on inside. Murphy, at a later event on January 29th in Washington DC, at the West End D.C. Public Library had this to say about the successful January 10th event in Vancouver and the role Twitter plays in so-called public discussion.
2: But today Twitter is the public square. It's where public discourse happens. The New York Times publishes tweets in their articles. What is actually happening is that women are being banned from participating in public discourse. It's anti-democratic, it's misogynist, and it's wrong. I want to say that I'm very glad that we're holding this event in a library. A couple of weeks ago we hosted the first ever public event discussing gender identity, ideology, and women's rights in Vancouver at the Vancouver Public Library, Uh, and something like 100 to 150 protesters showed up and stood outside the venue. I didn't see any of it firsthand, but afterwards was sent a video of a man shouting, trans women are women, at a group of mostly women, but some men also, who robotically repeated after him like drones. So we're seeing women silenced by men who are working to define women out of existence. These activists worked very hard to have our event shut down, pressuring the Vancouver Public Library to cancel our booking. In response to the pressure, Chief Librarian Christina DeCastel issued a statement on Twitter saying, VPL has zero tolerance for discrimination and does not agree with the views of feminist current. She also said, we recognize that Megan Murphy's opinions are concerning. Well, the library declined to cancel our booking and clarified that they were not in a position to censor free speech that doesn't violate the criminal code, they also chose to smear myself and feminist current and forced us to change the time of the event to 9.30 p.m. on a weeknight because they wanted us to hold the event after hours. The library apparently forgot that its primary purpose and core value is access. The universal mission of libraries is to provide equitable access to information and to facilitate and protect the right to freely pursue knowledge. And yet our public library made intentional choices to attempt to limit access to our event and to actively discourage people from attending and deciding for themselves what to think about the issue at hand. Our brand new mayor in Vancouver, when asked to comment on the event and on my position, said he thought it was despicable. He said this despite having no idea what would be discussed at the event (laughs) nor what my position actually is and despite the fact that myself and the organizers had received numerous violent, misogynist, sexualized threats through Eventbrite. That is what he should have called despicable, not the women trying to stand up for and have a conversation about their rights. And this is common. For people to smear those of us asking questions about gender identity ideology and legislation without actually engaging with what we're saying.
1: Megan Murphy and other feminists from the UK and the United States gathered the last week in January for women's stand-up events in Washington DC, intended to rock the echelons of patriarchal power and to start a real public dialogue that includes women's voices. The actions were also intended to begin a public dialogue and awareness about the Federal Equality Act that some are predicting will be made into law in the next three to four years. The Equality Act, if made law, would replace sex-based protections for girls and women with gender protection for males who identify as transgender. In rural Orisha in India, police have arrested six men for battering a woman and her four children to death and dumping the bodies down a village well because they suspected she was a witch casting spells. The criminals included five men from a family who lived in the village who had earlier accused the woman of being a witch after a girl in their family fell ill and died. They were accompanied by a male witch doctor. They decided to take action against her when another family member fell ill and broke into her house when her husband was away, attacking her and her children aged 4 years, 7 years, 12 years and 10 months. Her husband called the police when he came back to find his family missing and a blood trail led the police to a nearby well where the bodies had been tucked. Although the Odisha government had passed the law in 2013 making accusations of witchcraft and harassment a criminal offence punishable by up to three years in prison, a total of 134 women were killed in 2016 on suspicions of witchcraft. The six men accused of the crime have been arrested and charged with murder and various other offences under Odisha's Prevention of Witch Hunting Act. According to the group Women and Girls in Scotland, Guidelines governing the inclusion of trans pupils in schools could breach as many as 15 articles of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. The set of guidelines written by LGBT youth and the Scottish Trans Alliance state that trans pupils should share overnight accommodations on school trips with pupils based on their gender identity, participate in sports as their self-identified gender, and use changing rooms and toilets based on their self-identified gender rather than their biological sex. Students who are uncomfortable with this should be asked to wait and use the facilities after the trans student has done so and parents need not be informed when a student has to share facilities or accommodation with a trans student of the opposite sex. Citing situations that this will lead to, such as victims of abuse being forced to share facilities with members of the opposite sex and the unfairness of mixed-sex sports, WGIS has argued that the report has been written without carrying out the legally mandated children's rights impact assessment and ignores the human rights of girls. In an op-ed published by the New York Times this month, Alia al Hatloul revealed the severe torture faced by her sister Loujain al Hatloul, a 29-year-old woman who is one of nine women's rights activists currently in prison in Saudi Arabia. Hatloul was first arrested in 2014 when she tried to drive into Saudi Arabia with a driver's license from the UAE. And in 2015, she was one of the first women to run for a seat on the Municipal Council. While she moved to the UAE after that, In 2017, she and her husband were effectively kidnapped by Saudi security forces and returned to the country. Shortly before it was made legal for women to drive last June, these nine activists had been arrested for fighting for that right. Khatluj said she had been held in solitary confinement, beaten, waterboarded, given electric shocks, sexually harassed, and threatened with rape and murder. According to Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International and their families, the other imprisoned women suffer similar treatment, being subjected to electric shocks, whippings, forced kissing and hugging, threats of rape and more. Some were tied to a metal bed and flogged. Based on the Equality Act, the Joanna Randall MacIver Junior Research Fellowship at Oxford University, established in the 1930s for women studying fine arts, music or literature, was deemed to be quote, Discriminatory on the Grounds of Gender by Oxford's Council, and became the first historically female-only fellowship to be opened up to male applicants. This was in spite of the underrepresentation of women in academia, highlighting how the act puts at risk all provisions made to help women overcome historical gender biases in such institutions. The Central Bureau of Investigation in India has filed a 73-page chart sheet revealing the horrific details of sexual assault carried out in a shelter for vulnerable girls in Muzaffarpur that were made public last year by a social audit carried out by the Tata Institute of Social Sciences. Out of the 42 girls in the shelter, medical tests revealed that as many as 34 had been sexually assaulted and the report revealed how the girls were forced by the owner to wear revealing clothes and dance to vulgar songs, drugged and raped by guests and denied food when they refused to comply. Besides the owner, 20 people, including staff at the shelter home, have been charged under the Protection of Children from Sexual Offences Act. In France in 2013, a 25-year-old woman was left paraplegic after being thrown out of a second-floor window by her partner. Though her attacker had been sentenced to 15 years in prison, she has recently been deemed to be partially responsible for the attack. At the time of the attack, she had been living with her partner who had regularly inflicted violence upon her. On the night of the attack, the police had intervened in the couple's home after he had been violent with a friend and had advised her to spend the night somewhere else. After contacting friends and social emergency numbers, she could not find a place to stay and so decided to return home. Later at night, she was found at the entrance of a building unconscious and with facial injuries after she had been thrown out of the window by her partner. Because she had gone back home, she has been found to be partially guilty and hence has had a compensation reduced. Her legal team will be appealing against this in May. USA Powerlifting, a national affiliate of the International Powerlifting Federation, released a statement banning transgender individuals from competition. Although it follows the International Olympic Committee guidelines for the inclusion of transgender individuals, the guidelines also allow for different sports to determine the impact on fair play through such inclusion. Based on the policies of the IPF Medical Committee, the organization gave two reasons for the ban. First, that testosterone or other androgens that are commonly used for female to male transition are not allowed due to their anabolic nature regardless of medical condition or therapeutic use. Secondly, regarding the participation of male-to-female competitors, they wrote, quote, Significant advantages are had, including but not limited to increased body and muscle mass, bone density, bone structure, and connective tissue. These advantages are not eliminated by reduction of serum androgens such as testosterone, yielding a potential advantage in strength sports such as powerlifting. An article published on the Insider two days ago reveal the extreme monitoring and curtailment of women's freedom under male guardianship laws in Saudi Arabia. Shahad al-Mohemi, a 17-year-old girl, had lived with her family under her father's guardianship all her life. She had almost constantly been in the presence of a man, was not allowed to talk to any men outside of her family, and did not have access to any money. She was frequently beaten by her father, who also threatened to kill her. If she was seen with men who weren't family, her wrists and ankles were bound with ropes as punishment. It was almost impossible for a woman to report violence and have justice be on her side. Women who tried to flee were often never found again and rumoured to be killed. Having planned for almost a year, Shahad fled after stealing all her family members' phones, credit cards, and passports. Aside from the physical restrictions and social pressures, fleeing was especially difficult because of the existence of a sophisticated state-run online system called Upshare which enables men to track women's whereabouts and bar them from travelling or accessing resources. Through an app on their mobile phones, men can deny or give permission to travel to women and they get alerted every time their passports are used. Mohamed was given refugee status by the UN and a home in Sweden, where she now lives, goes to school, works a part-time job and gives advice to other young women trying to flee her country. In Mexico, Daphne McPherson, who had been accused of murder and sentenced to 16 years in prison after suffering a miscarriage in a department store, walked free when an appeal court judge found that the scientific evidence used to convict her was flimsy. This highlighted the criminalization of women who suffer miscarriages, complicated births, or spontaneous abortions. While Mexico City decriminalized abortion a decade ago, it remains illegal in many parts of the country. Mary Cruz Ocampo, a women's rights activist, argued that McPherson was punished for not living up to an idealized vision of women. She wasn't being prosecuted for having an abortion, but rather for her deficiency as a mother, where the prosecution accused her of indifference toward a newborn, describing her actions as something, quote, not even a dog would be, unquote. In Iran, a 25-year-old woman, identified as Nosheen, was hanged after she was convicted of murdering a man, Sohail, who had promised to marry her but took advantage of her and subsequently brutalized blackmail and forced her into having sexual relations with his friends. Recently, another victim of domestic and sexual violence, Zena Sakanwand, who was arrested as a child, was also executed. This highlights the plight of women who face sexual and domestic violence in Iran and receive little to no support from the government. They are forced to go back home with the same husband who battles them or are sentenced to execution or retribution in kind if they commit murder in self-defense. In India, the parliament has passed the Surrogacy Regulation Bill which bans commercial surrogacy. However, it still allows altruistic surrogacy by a relative of a medically proven infertile married couple. The bill has been criticized by progressive quarters for making it difficult for unmarried and homosexual couples to hire a surrogate rather than the fact that it enables the ownership of women's bodies through kinship tax. In Bangladesh, nearly 50,000 women workers went on strike, walking out of their factories which manufacture products for H&M, Walmart, Tesco, and Aldi, demanding higher wages. The Bangladeshi government had raised the minimum wages to 90 euros in December, but workers said that the actual raise was much less, and many unions said that the hike failed to account for price rises, making garment workers some of the lowest-paid workers in the country. While they stood on the roads, they were faced by violence from musclemen hired by the manufacturers and the police fired water cannons and tear gas. During one of the clashes, the police also fired rubber bullets and one worker was killed.
3: A couple more late-breaking stories for you today, sisters. The first is out of Virginia, where school teacher Dina Persico has filed a discrimination lawsuit against the Chesterfield County Public School District for continued harassment based on her choice of dress and sexual orientation. Persico says she was repeatedly talked to about her clothing and her hairstyle by school administrators, was told her appearance was, quote, intimidating, and at one point even a trip to the bathroom became problematic. I went to put my hand on the door and he actually blocked me and he was like, no. That's not really appropriate, you going in there with all those, you know, with the young female students. I felt really humiliated. It was an assault on my person, and then it was like your basic human dignity. I just need to use the restroom. That's all I need to do. It was suggested that if I seemed more feminine, I would be less intimidating. And they suggested that if I got bangs, it might soften me. I I, I got them. There were some jokes made like, oh, should we call her Mr. Persico? In February of last year, she took medical leave after suffering a stress-induced stroke. She is suing the district for $700,000 in damages and hopes that the district will implement training to avoid this kind of sexist discrimination in the future. And from the Vatican, Pope Francis has recently addressed the much less spoken about sexual abuse within the Catholic Church of nuns by priests. The sexual slavery of sisters in congregations primarily in Northeastern Europe is not news within the Vatican bubble, and was only recently addressed by the monthly Vatican magazine Women Church World. As you can guess, the Pope believes the abuse can be handled internally. He points to action by former Pope Benedict in 2005, in which he dissolved the St. Jean Order of Nuns because of said abuse, as evidence that the Church can deal with this filth and evil on its own. In the next few weeks, the Vatican will be holding a three-day summit to address sexual abuse within the Church, with the express purpose of discussing, quote, the prevention of abuse of minors and vulnerable adults, end quote. But the Pope says the world shouldn't get its hopes up as he doesn't expect the summit to resolve the problem.
1: That concludes WLRN's World News segment for Thursday, February 7, 2019. I'm Damien. If you have news tips and stories to share that you'd like to hear included in our world headlines, please contact us at WLRnewscontact at theregmail.com and let us know what's going on.
0: Oh my goddess! I was just checking out the coolest blog on radical feminist ideas and defense against misogynist attacks on women when poof! It
3: disappeared. What? No way. Let me see. Damn. Yeah, it looks like it's gone. I see misogynist hateful stuff up on the internet all the time. And this is what they choose to censor? That's so wrong. Yeah.
0: I clicked on a link to this blog post on the criminal history of a trans-identified male currently being housed in a women's detention center, but the page wouldn't load. And then this message came up.
4: RagThemThoughts.org is in violation of stating publicly accessible facts and information on a publicly accessible forum, which is in violation of our policies, so it has been removed from the internet.
3: WTF! You mean LGBTQ WTF now, don't you there, Thistle? What used to be a fight for rights has become the thought police. Yeah, basically,
0: jeez. If Megan Murphy can lose her Twitter handle for stating facts, how long
3: until they come for WLRN? I don't know, but the worrisome thought has crossed my mind more than once. We need to prepare for the future. Hmm. Ah, of course, we should have a hard drive to back up all our content. That's a great idea!
0: We can have a WLRN fundraiser to raise $150 to buy WLRN's own hard drive to back up all of our podcasts, videos, and media production. Maybe in the future we will raise enough money to buy our own server and we can help other feminist media organizations and individuals to not only back up their files, but to stay online. Cool. I'll get the hard
3: drive as soon as we raise the funds. How do listeners donate?
0: Right on. It's easy. Just go to the WLRN WordPress site and click on the PayPal button and make your donation. When the notes box comes up, be sure to earmark your funds to the WLRN Hard Drive Fund. We'll keep a tally, and once we hit $150, we
3: will announce it and get the device. So, just go to wlrnewsmedia.wordpress.com and click on the PayPal button to join this fundraiser to kick off 2019 right. With increased security measures, sisters, my sisters, thanks for staying tuned to WLRN.
0: seven-year bitch with their song Dead Men Don't Rape. Next up, we'll hear excerpts of an interview Julia did with Laurel McBride. Laurel McBride joined the feminist collective of Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter in 2016. She, like all members, fights to end all forms of male violence against women through frontline crisis work offering women concrete aid and a group to think, strategize, and act with in her resistance. Laurel has organized and facilitated roundtable conversations on topics like women's economic independence as part of Rape Relief's commitment to building alliances with activist groups in order to create social change together.
5: The space that we're in is both a library and an archive and an organizing space. We have this library and these archives so that we can both remember what it is that we've done and have a record of that, and often we draw on those in order to think of things for forward planning, of like revisiting those archives and connecting with our collective members um, from decades past. And oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so the the work continues to live on, and we often bring out the, the archives and as you can see on the table it's spread all over the place <laughs> um, but we have it broken into different sections okay. so the first section kind of on the side and over here is violence against women okay um, lots of
4: material here yeah there's an entire wall well two walls
5: and wow. uh, this is where we have stuff about rape and incest and wife assault and we have stuff on how to start a rape crisis center. Oh, whoa. And uh, we have uh, materials on our men's funding alliance, the, the men who act in support of feminists by agreeing to follow feminist leadership. They raise money for us, which allows us to have the independence that we do and to be able to make a lot of the decisions that we are able to and to hold events such as the Montreal Massacre Memorial. Mm-hmm. Um, Which was having amazing, that autonomy. by the way. Thank you. Yeah.
4: <laughs> But th- yeah, that autonomy, that's key.
5: Yes. We see now that so many women's groups are very beholden to government contracts and it really limits what's possible. So we mm. feel strongly about having independence and also having men do something concrete of raising actual dollars yeah. to support ending violence against women to do their part.
4: Yeah. Put their um, money where their mouth is if they say
5: that. they support us. <coughs> exactly. Wow.
4: So I have a question about the actual materials here. Yes. Some of them are books, but most of them are in folders or like in spiral bound kind of notebooks. Can you talk about what these actual materials are? Are they pamphlets?
1: Are they papers? Well, it's or a like
5: combination of things? There's quite a few like government reports. And so I think oh. so probably some of those are the, the coil bound books and we categorize it into feminist and other. So you may see <laughs> an F and an O. <laughs> okay. So the feminist means materials that are made by feminists and are explicitly feminist in nature versus other, which may be like a government report. So okay. something that's we see as important or it's something to be aware of, but that it's not a feminist in its analysis. Got it. Okay. Um,
4: Neat. Such an extensive collection here. Some of these papers are like discolored with age, but they're so well taken care of.
5: Yeah, well, the space we've been in has been through a renovation in the past few years, so it could be a bit more organized.
4: What other categories are there? I mean, this is the violence against women over here, yeah. and then what? So what then follows it gets
5: into um, objectification. Oh, wow! So that's where we have um, stuff about pornography and prostitution. When we had originally began talking about prostitution, we saw it as objectification, but as um, as the years went on and our analysis sharpened a bit on it, and having had members who um, have exited prostitution, we've come to see it now as violence against women rather than objectification, but we keep it over there because that's how we had uh, organized it originally. So in our minds, it's um, violence against women, but in classification, it's objectification. So we have... (laughs) So technical. (laughs) So there's all the books up here about... Porn and prostitution. And so then we have stuff about uh, the Picton massacres in here. Oh. Who was a prolific serial killer who targeted women in the downtown East Side who were in prostitution, Mm -hmm. knowing that he would be much more able to get away with it. Yeah, see, here's the missing woman from the downtown East Side. And then we have some stuff on our intervention into the Bedford case, which was the time period where the, the laws changed on prostitution in Canada.
4: Because that was recently, right?
5: Yeah, the intervention was earlier, and then we gave submissions to the government when they were drafting the Bill C-36 mm. as well. So that stuff is contained here. Cool. Um, what else you got? stuff on Red Hot Video also oh yeah <laughs> I love
4: seeing those photos in the feminism as revolution yeah. there are photos of like women uh, camping out in front of Red Hot Video and like distributing pamphlets and, and firebombing it yes. <laughs> yes.
0: well that wasn't us but <laughs> right right right.
5: so then we're into women's sexuality so this is where we have stuff about lesbianism Yeah, that's the 300 section 400s is women's unhealth, so it's talking about psychiatry and abortion and like all the different ways that our health is manipulated and how that ties to our oppression.
4: I see why you call it unhealth.
5: Yes, exactly. What's over here? This is our section on imperialism and colonialism. I guess part of it is that we have many materials that could be classified in, in multiple sections in the library, but we do our best to fit it to where we think it should go. Each woman who is tasked with the library kind of does it a little bit differently, so... Oh. Um, yeah, we try to be as consistent as possible. So there's lots of materials here about indigenous women and also um, stuff about the prison system.
4: This is a big section. It takes up about the whole other side of the wall.
5: I did say that often we will go back to our archives to use in our, in our work presently, but we also invite other activists to utilize it as well. Um, I've had women come up and spend some time in our library going through our archives to um, get what they need to do their organizing and to take some ideas. We want it to be yeah. mutually beneficial for other women because we know that <laughs> when we're each stronger and um, sharper that it's, it's good for everyone. So then we're into the capitalizing on women's work. So there's um, materials about the Wages for Housework campaign, and NAFTA when it was being drafted, on daycare...
4: wow, Newspaper clippings, even.
5: Part of uh, what the women who do our public education component of our work is to monitor the media, and to take note of how women and violence against women is being portrayed in the public. So we will either respond to something if we... Disagree with how they're covering it, mm-hmm. but then we'll also create our own materials and and have those published.
6: Um,
7: and
5: then we track public cases too. So that's the section, and then it carries on to, to here as well. Like into the kitchen. Into the kitchen, yeah. <laughs> you have to use every <laughs> square inch. Wow. And then the, the final section here is, and behind you as well. Um, This is where we're recording the different uh, waves of feminism. So we uh, have a lot of different publications that are explicitly feminist, many from the second wave, Off Our Backs, we have Horizons, which is Canadian, we have Rain and Thunder, I'm sure we have Kinesis as well, which was a Vancouver-based one. Um, Is any of this... Is it digitized anywhere? No, that's sort of a, a position we're in n- now of like trying to think how we could maintain the life of this collection, knowing yeah. that <laughs> paper has a, a limited lifespan. So that would be a, a enormous undertaking. Exactly. But yes, that's the space that we're in. And, um, so we have the Crisis Line, but it's also a transition house. So that's a bit uncommon, except for in rural areas where you're having to do kind of everything. Because we respond to the entire continuum of male violence against women. So we've integrated the rape crisis center and the transition house into one physical space. So the 24-hour crisis line, we have volunteers who stay overnight and answer the phone.
4: So people actually call this location?
5: yeah the location is confidential, but they the okay. a crisis line right um, so we can get a woman safe in the middle of the night. Wow. Sometimes we have to be quite creative in our in our crisis work to figure something out of how to get what she needs.
4: Yeah so let's say somebody calls you, it's two in the morning, right You have the one woman here answering the phones.
5: Well, we always work in pairs, um, so there's at least two women on a shift. So there'll be one woman who's answering the phone, but she has a partner. We do this to keep each other accountable for the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And we know that we can be a bit smarter when we're there's two of us. And we, we take different roles as well. So the woman on the phone is talking to the woman directly. So she's offering empathy to the woman, and uh, she's that direct line, whereas the other woman may have to talk to the police. Oh, And yeah. advocate on her behalf, so... She needs to be in a different mindset. So we, we keep those um, two roles separate. That's so smart. That's mm-hmm. oh, that's a great um, strategy.
4: How long has this been here?
5: We opened in 1973.
4: Congratulations <laughs> for like, still being around.
5: Yeah, it, it's wow. quite impressive. When we first opened at that time, it was just a rape crisis center, just a couple of women coming together to figure out how we could um, respond to the the crisis that we were beginning to see so
4: did you have phones I did like was the phone line in operation at that
5: time yeah it was a phone um, okay but we realized after a few years that women needed a place to go also Mm, yeah so then we started working towards getting a house and that's where the creation of the Men's Funding Alliance came from. Originally they were imagined to help us get a house and Lee Lakeman was instrumental in the process of getting the Men's Funding Alliance going. We knew men had much more access to resources than women Mm -hmm. so we made a list of men we thought we could um, call on to help us do this. So there's different ways of imagining or seeing the men in our lives and how we can use those relationships to work towards our liberation. Is there anything that you're working
4: towards right now? You just had the conference, so I assume you're going to take, like, a little breather. Just, like, Mm. cool (laughs) off.
5: There's a few breathers. We're always uh, on to the next. Mm -hmm. So, as Hila mentioned yesterday, we are hosting uh, Winona LaDuke for International Women's Day. It'll be on March 9th is this open to the public well it's it's limited space but yes it will be um, it, I think it will be more so a, a public education event okay um, but the the details are yet to be worked out mm-hmm. So <laughs> I, sh- okay. I shouldn't say too much more
4: <laughs> can you talk about being a member yeah what's involved in that what did you do to become a member how did you even hear about this place
5: um, I mean, I heard about it sort of... Uh, not, for, I, wasn't, I didn't set out to become a feminist. <laughs> 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 but here I am. Famous words. So I moved to Vancouver in February of 2016. So I was new to town, and I was looking for a group of women to get connected to, and I didn't know too many people in the city, so I... Was just kind of looking at women's groups and and found Vancouver Reap Relief and the thing that kind of hooked me is that we offer a monthly training group so each month women who are interested in volunteering to do the frontline work of the crisis center and the transition house will go through what we dub as a training group so they come to the space that we were at uh, last night So it's a separate space from the transition house as to maintain the confidentiality of this address.
4: You meet women there and then you bring them here?
5: So through the five weeks, uh, women get to know a bit more about who rape relief is, what our history is, what our politics are. So they're kind of trying us out and getting a sense of what it might be like. We do some consciousness raising in that setting. We want women to use their lived experience of being a girl and a woman in the world as the basis for relating to other women when they do come on shift because Mm -hmm. we operate as peer counsellors. We don't see ourselves as more expert than a woman who calls us. She's the expert of her life. But she gets to have the benefit of talking to some other women about what's going on with her right now and that she gets to get the benefit of the women who called us before her, what the strategies that she has employed in her life and the things that she's figured out. So we're collectivizing all of those experiences of the women who have been in all sorts of situations.
4: And after uh, almost 50 years of doing that, I'm sure you have a lot of tricks up your sleeve for helping women. (laughs)
5: Yeah, women call us for different things, sometimes they want to hold a man accountable and that might involve using the police and we'll advocate for her to get the best response possible Mm -hmm. and that starts with sitting down with her talking about what it's like to use the police, giving her what she needs to be able to write a statement, accompanying her to give that statement and we know that when women Use the criminal justice system and they have an advocate with them they're much more likely to get a better response from from the state so we've maintained accompaniment as a, a key piece of our frontline crisis work we'll go with women to the hospital to get a rape kit done we'll go to an mcfd meeting that's the ministry that's responsible for children and families so we often work with women who have open files with with MCFD and their kids might be at risk of being apprehended or perhaps oh. they already have been apprehended and we're working with her to get them back. We, we know that women it's in their interest to have someone with them in those meetings um in those interactions with the state. So, yeah, we do accompaniment, emotional support of just being able to talk about what what has happened.
0: Yeah.
5: Um Otherwise we can help her to think through a strategy of maybe she wants to do a confrontation of her attacker and gather up some women who will stand with her while she confronts him.
8: So this poem uh, is a well-known poem, but uh, it's about my period. Um, I'll, the, the preamble is this, I'll try to keep it brief. My daughter, who's 18 now, was 12 when she started her period. She made it uh, quite dramatic. Um, It was a Saturday morning. She was hyperventilating, clutching bloody underwear. Uh, I tried to explain to her that that was privilege. You started on a Saturday morning with people who love you. You know, some of us start in gym class.
0: You're good. She wasn't feeling me. I take
8: her into the bathroom. I'm explaining the maxi pad shit. I'm explaining that this is also privilege. Your maxi pad has wings. Mine hadn't even been invented yet. When I had my period, privilege. She's not feeling me. So tell her, you know, get on out there and be somebody. She walks around the house for hours, like someone died. (laughs) So it was really my little boy, who was four, who came in my room and closed the door and was like, we gotta do something, okay? <laughs> So I threw her a period party, it was really wonderful, and all my friends showed up dressed in red.
6: <laughs>
8: all the food was red, all the drinks were red. And we raised the roof to my daughter's shedding uterus. And then, several months later, she sends me a screenshot of a tweet that held all of that stigmatizing language I was trying to keep away from her. She wanted me to respond to the tweeter. At the time, Twitter only allowed for 140 characters, and you can't really cuss nobody out fully in 140 characters. So the poem was my response. Dude on Twitter says, quote, I was having sex with my girlfriend when she started her period, so I dumped that bitch immediately, end quote. Dear nameless dummy on Twitter, you're the reason my daughter cried funeral tears when she started her period. The sudden grief she felt after the matriculation from childhood and the induction into a reality that she was gonna have to negotiate people like you and your disdain for what her body can do. Herein begins an anatomy lesson infused with feminist politics because I hate you. (laughs) There is a thing called a uterus. It sheds itself every 28 days or so, or in my case, every 23 days. I've always been a rule breaker, but that's the anatomy part. I digress. The feminist politic part is that we know how to let the body, how to regenerate, how to become new, just waxing and waning, not unlike the moon and tides, both of which influence how you behave. I digress. Twitter dummy, women have vaginas that can speak to each other. By this I mean, if we're with our mothers, our partners, our sisters, our friends, our menstrual cycles will actually sink the fuck up. My own cervix is mad influential. Everybody I love knows how to bleed with me. (laughs) Hold on to that, because there's a metaphor in it. But when your mother carried you, the ocean in her belly is what made you buoyant, made you possible. You had it under your tongue when you burst through her skin wet and panting from the heat of her body, the body whose machinery you now mock on social media, that body, wrapped you in everything that was miraculous about it, and sung you lullabies laced in platelets without which you wouldn't have no Twitter account at all, motherfucker. I digress. (laughs) See, it's possible that we know the world better because of the blood that visits us. It interrupts our favorite white skirts, shows up at dinner parties unannounced. Blood will do that, period. (laughs) Blood is the biggest siren and we understand that blood misbehaves. It does not wait for a hand signal or a welcome sign above the door. And when you deal in blood over and over again like we do, when it keeps returning to you, that makes you a warrior. And while all good generals know not to discuss battle plans with the enemy, let me say this to you, dummy on Twitter. If there is any balance in the universe at all, you're going to be blessed with daughters. (laughs) Blessed. Etymologically, blessed means to make bleed. So now it's a lesson in linguistics. In other words, blood speaks. But that's the message. Stay with me. Your daughter is going to teach you what men need to know. That women made of moonlight and magic and macabre will make you know the blood. We're going to get it all over the sheets and car seats. We're going to do that. Period. We're going to introduce you to our insides. And if you are as unprepared as we sometimes are, it can get all over you and leave a forever stain. So to my daughter. Should anybody be foolish enough to mishandle the wild geography of your body, how it rides a red running current, like any good wolf or witch, well that's when you bleed. Bleed for your sisters who bled too frequently. Bleed in the name of Eve And her first rebellion in that garden. Bleed for the little girl who had her genitals mutilated in Kinshasa. And that was this morning. Give that blood a biblical name. Name it for the ones we lost. Name it for the ones whose faces we do not know. Name it for the ones for whom we have assembled today. But bleed anyhow. Spill your impossible scripture all over the good furniture. Bleed and bleed and bleed on everything he loves. Period.
3: That was the period poem by Dominique Christina, who performed it live at the Vancouver Rape Relief's Montreal Massacre event in December of 2018. Dominique will be speaking with Cherry Smiley, a warrior hero and feminist activist, on International Women's Day for the Indigenous and Women of Color Rise event in Seattle, Washington. This event is organized by Asian Women for Equality and Fertile Ground. For more information, visit fertilegroundinstitute.org. Next up, WLRN's Robin brings us an interview segment with Lee Lakeman, founding member of the Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. This
9: is Robin Long with Women's Liberation Radio News. I'm here tonight with Lee Lakeman, who has been with the Vancouver Rape Relief Center pretty much since it started, I believe. Uh, Lee is a longtime activist for women's (laughs) rights. Uh, She's served for 38 years organizing in the front line against violence against women and has been with the Rape Relief Center of Vancouver almost as long as it's been in existence.
7: Is that correct? Oh, we- there was a few years before me. I, I came in 1978, and the center began in 1973.
9: And you actually started <laughs> one of the earliest uh, women's shelters in Canada, is that correct?
7: Yes, I did, in Ontario, the um, Woodstock Women's Emergency Shelter.
9: How does a collective of 30 women function together? Are there things about the way it's organized that make the group of women work together more effectively? Or,
7: Oh, it's a fantastic undertaking just to keep the collective going. But I believe... You know, our our reputation is international at this point. I believe it's obvious that the collective has been able to sustain radical politics by hanging on to that collectivity. Mm -hmm. So, But to answer your how question, the collective meets regularly. Women are assigned by each other to subgroups of the collective. There are working committees within the collective. But when women join, they've already agreed to a quite specific basis of unity. They've agreed how they're going to work. They've agreed with whom they're going to work. They've agreed on basic political points before they get in. And once you're in the collective, you're both an owner of this building and a totally powerful member of a group that has serious decisions to make. Everyone in the group does crisis work. Everyone in the group... Protects public alliances. Everyone in the group does public education, has a share in the budget decisions. So you know it, it's it's a totally inclusive collective.
9: It's so unusual that that um, that can work well, and and it's also really unusual in in the larger world as organizations. So many of them are just completely run from the top down. It's great to see that being successful.
7: And yeah. su- well, since 1973. So it has to reinvent itself constantly. I mean, there's an annual process in which the group confirms each other's membership and confirms its internal structure, and that's taken very seriously.
9: Well, the group has seemed to really maintain its integrity over the years. When so many women's groups have sort of given up a, a radical agenda, you, you've maintained that. How have the services of the group changed over the years, or, or the organization?
7: Well, they've expanded. Initially, the four women who founded the group really had hopes of building an agency, you know, was the era of the welfare state, even in mm-hmm. Canada. And mm-hmm. so they were trying to create a service that was not available to women anywhere else. But they were politicized women. So their agreement was that they were trying to create a 24-hour line and an advocacy process in which they would support the women who called. But they we're in the course of writing this history down now. So, you know, I don't have a chance of telling it all to you. But initially, it was just to, to have a very good rape crisis line. But mm-hmm. quickly, they realized that unless you... Keep up the participation in the women's liberation movement, your service just becomes a two bit cheaply underpaid service and it's just a sacrifice of women's work. But Mm -hmm. if you stay active as part of the women's liberation movement, you can make that service the entry point in building a movement. So that each woman who calls is a prospective new member of the women's movement. And each woman who works here may start out thinking she's just doing a service. But she quickly learns that she's able to use the resources and the history of the organization to do women's liberation work in the world. Looking into
9: the past, I I know that um, you were at the center in 89, correct? When the massacre happened at the Ecole Polytechnique. Yeah. Um, what impact did that have on your collective, and how did that change your focus as a group?
7: Oh, well, I'm not sure it changed our focus, but I can remember that that day, one of our members phoned in to alert us that the massacre, at least something dramatic was happening at Le Coppola Polytechnique. And we had close alliances, and still do, with women in Quebec, in the rape crisis centers, but also now in the abolition work. So at the time, I was already a delegate to the National Action Committee on the Status of Women. So I had contacts in Ottawa and in Quebec for whom I was fearful, because as we gradually realized, it was only women who were being killed. And we realized that the media was not portraying that accurately, in fact, kind of trying to deny it, and that the politicians were absolutely refusing to recognize it as femicide. We got nervous about the likelihood of copycat actions. And in fact, there were several copycat uh, um, actions that men tried to carry out. They were interfered with largely, but nevertheless had happened. So uh, for us, it was a realization that patriarchy was taking yet a new form of male violence against women that this massacre of women students at the call polytechnique was a punishment in the eyes of the attacker for what feminism had done to him feminism had gotten in his way essentially but it also meant that Patriarchy now was making martyrs of those that men could identify as feminists. And we recognized, I recognized that this new form would have to be contended with one way or another. I mean, it had happened certainly in other places, although less definitively men were less obvious and clear about attacking feminists and wanting to kill off feminists. And mm-hmm. I think that era has not ended. We are still in a promotion of anti-feminist activity. I think there's a lot of permission for men to attack feminists now uh, with, with not, only, not only trashing feminists politically, but actually endangering them.
9: Sure, the incel movement is one of the most recent uh, manifestations of that. And it's chilling.
7: Yes, and, and I think women in the third world and Indigenous women are absolutely mm-hmm. suffering abuse and death.
9: What has the Centre done in regards to the deaths and disappearances of Indigenous women in Canada?
7: From the earliest days, which is you know close to 1995, we were part of calling on the government to investigate these disappearances we were quick to recognize that there were multiple mass killers, serial killers at large in the community, particularly targeting women who were trapped in prostitution, but also triggering, essentially, women who had to live in the public by virtue of poverty, which was true for many Indigenous women. So. We've been part of the protest and the demand for examination right from the beginning. We monitored the case of the uh, the man who was convicted eventually of some 40 murders in Canada, although he was part of more than that. Mm-hmm. And we knew that at the time there were five such serial killers operating in our region of the province. So... We've worked for many years with contingents of Indigenous women trying to organize themselves and trying to, you know, put out the call for what's needed to protect Indigenous women. And we still are. Most recently, there's been a government-sponsored examination, although nowhere near as fully an examination as we would have liked.
9: One of the divisions within different branches of feminism has been how to support prostitutes, or as liberal feminists like to call them, sex workers. Tell us, uh, how has the center worked on this issue? And what would you have to say to liberal feminists who claim that being pro-prostitution is a feminist act?
7: Well, I've been saying it for 30 or 40 years now, so I have (laughs) a lot to say But the first thing is, if you think it's so great, you do it. The people that I know don't want to do it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Prostitution is, in my mind, the cutting edge of feminism at the moment. The struggle against prostitution is the global struggle. And it's the struggle that includes the way feminism can fight racism, can fight poverty, and can fight globalization, really. So it's been clear to me from my first work, even in my first work in Ontario, most of the women who I met who had been involved in prostitution had been pressed into it by incest when they were young, by poverty as young adults, and by a desperate need for help with their children when they were adult. So. I've been clear all the way along that prostitution was not a desirable future uh, in most women's minds. and
9: It's certainly a short future for many women.
7: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, should you survive and continue for long, it's a hellish life. But we used to have a position that the most important thing was to get the law off the backs of the prostituted women. But then there came a time, I think, as neoliberalism strengthened, that we realized we didn't need to put up with legalizing the men in prostitution in order to get the law off the backs of the women in prostitution. And that was a really significant advance. So in the early days, we would have said legalize for the sake of the women. But the movement grew up and realized we don't have to accept that we can take sex seriously in the question of prostitution. And we can say what the men are doing is unacceptable. What the women are doing is just survival behavior. What we have to do is deal with changing the men and use the law against the men. And when that became a global discussion, as it is now, it became more and more clear that the movement to end prostitution is a fantastically integrated movement that is anti-class division, class oppression, anti-racism, anti-imperialism, that it's feminism's step in this moment. So I'm more adamant than I've ever been. And I think the movement has been spectacular in beginning to build a global resistance to prostitution. Absolutely, yes.
9: I I love the fact that women are actually arguing about it now as well. Hopefully, it it will help us to somehow bring these women over to a more radical understanding of of the place of women in in the world.
7: Well, maybe it will, but you know, the history of winning over all the liberals is not great. I mean, (laughs) I think it's important to remember that the majority of the world is women, and the majority of women are brown and poor. Mm -hmm. And unless our analysis faces up to that, it's got nowhere to go. So it's not so important to me to convince all the white girls in university or the few privileged women of color in Mm -hmm. university. It's much more important to me to recognize the desperation of the poor brown women who are not so thrilled about being offered a future of sex slavery.
9: Yes. And so it's not just making it illegal for the men to buy the sexual services of women, but supporting women themselves and empowering and, and themselves and, and finding alternate work and training and, yeah. Yeah, although um,
7: that is the hard call because we're also in this neoliberal moment where governments are withholding the resources that are mm-hmm. their obligation to redistribute. So, you know, this is when we're relying on there being the rest of the left in full mm-hmm. action, and they're not there yet.
9: Mm -hmm. Well, another uh, challenge that the center has really had to struggle with over the years is the whole Kimberly Nixon case. Can you talk about that? Sure. So Kimberly Nixon was a trans-identified male who wanted to join the collective as a crisis counselor. Is that the the story?
7: It's close. He had managed to get himself into a support group in another group called Bad Women's Support Services, Mm -hmm. because one of the counselors there, uh, a liberal, cheated and let him into the group, even though the group had a policy against that, and then kind of got caught out. So the group used the excuse, you know, another liberal excuse of, saying to Nixon, well, you can't really join the group or get hired in our group because your battering is too recent. And I don't know if you know, but in in many liberal anti-violence groups, that's the excuse that's used to control the membership. Mm -hmm. So I think Nixon had probably figured out that we didn't have that policy, that if you want to act, we don't have a criteria that said You have to be cured before you can be rebellious because we didn't think of violence against women as illness. Mm -hmm. So Nixon appeared one evening in a kind of screening process that we had. We used to let anyone come to the screening process who was interested in training. And in that situation, he was identified, at least. The rape relief women who were there, there were three or four women working that night. I was not one of them. But one of them at least recognized that this was a street person. And that would be the colloquialism at the time, uh, sort of a member of the demi monde in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And she knew that because she had been a prostitute on the street. And she knew. So she approached Nixon that night and said, how long have you been living as a woman? She approached him in private and talked to him respectfully and, in fact, was compassionate. And Nixon was furious, and the next morning went to the Human Rights Commission and complained that it was bigotry to ask, and from then on claimed that what he wanted was to be a member of the group and to be able to volunteer. I don't think actually he knew anything about the collectivity. He just wanted in. Mm -hmm. And in those days, transition or attempting to transition or believing you could transition was a very very unusual thing. This was 1995. Sure. So, um, but you know, liberals abound. So, in the <laughs> process of trying to complain that human rights had been breached, he ran into a coalition that was willing to help, and that coalition had members of it who were anti-rape relief anyway. So he got plenty of help right away, and then found a lawyer who was very happy to see herself as a messiah in this situation. And there began a case that went for uh, more than 10 years. And we lost at the first round, the local round, because too many people had drunk the Mm Kool-Aid. And we did have expert feminist legal assistance. And thank God, because we couldn't have possibly paid for that amount of help. And we did really examine ourselves and really think about this. And we decided at the time that the issue for us was that this person did not have the lived experience of growing up as a girl to a woman, and therefore could not participate in our 101 crisis work or public education work or even function in the collective as an equal, because we rely on that experience of being a girl and growing into a woman. It's the fundamental conversation in our group. You know, It's what you say to a woman who calls, I may not have had your experience, but I remember like you what it's like to stand at a bus stop and be frightened. I like you remember You know, both the fear of being pregnant and the fear I'd never be pregnant. I, like you, remember the sexual harassment of a leering teacher or a first date. And that's the experiences that Nixon didn't have. And also, therefore, could not understand the unity that we were calling on, the shared oppression experience that we were calling on, out of which builds our intention to change the world.
9: You know addressing the trans issue is torn apart a lot of women's organizations was there a lot of internal strife in the center over this or or were you able to reach a consensus pretty easily?
7: We were able to reach a consensus quite early and quite easily because remember we have a very long process of coming into the collective so mm-hmm. Once you're in the collective, you've agreed that women are oppressed, you've agreed that the group is about liberating women, you've agreed on our methodologies. We didn't have a basis of unity point about trans, but when we were called on in court, all of us answered in a very similar way, our own words and our own experience, but we answered in a very similar way that women are born into conditions of oppression and that that's what we have in common. And Nixon was not. Nixon made a decision that he believed he could change sex in his 40s -hmm. and went from being a pilot for rich airline-owning characters while dressed in women's underwear. He went from that to trying to pass as a woman. Obviously, it didn't pass. That's why we knew. Sure.
9: Well, is the center still under attack for their position on trans inclusiveness? Yes, always. Always. And has it had a big impact on your ability to fund yourselves? Or
7: At various points, it's threatened our funding. um, But about funding, we are also radical. We've always had a process since my first year. We've had a process of winning over community support and community funding mechanisms that meant we were never totally dependent on government funding. At one point, we lost the government funding and we could stay operating for 10 years. We did. And yeah, it's intentional on our part that what we want is the support from our community. And we tell people, this is not a good job. You don't don't wanna work here. Like if you wanna work here, it should be because you really wanna be politically active and. Getting a salary means you don't have to have another job, but it's not an easy place to work. It's not a career future. It remains a grassroots, seriously committed collective of women fighting for our own and other women's liberation. And we tell that to the public. We don't think there's any point in disguising that or in pretending that's not what we are. It is what we are. I think we get the government funding because we have that much public support.
9: There's going to be an event coming up with the uh, Rape Relief Center. They're hosting an International Women's Day event. Do you know anything about it? Are you working with them on it? It's going to feature Winona LaDuke?
7: Yes, it will. I've been asked to speak a little bit on that evening. So, yeah, I know a bit about it.
9: So uh, if you're in the Vancouver area, you might want to look into attending that. You also spoke with Megan Murphy at the library event. How was that for you?
7: Well, uh, Megan had asked me a month or two before whether I would be willing when she was trying to set up the meeting. And I said I wanted to talk about it ahead of time. But when the library started to interfere with her capacity to speak, I decided it was important that I join her. And Mm -hmm. so I did. And it was a very interesting process. It was very frightening in advance of the speaking engagement because I've been here many times before when rape relief was taking the role of breaking the taboo. And there clearly was a taboo about daring to discuss the gender ideology and the trans ideology in this situation. There's a very tight lockdown against the feminist positions. And there was a lot of nonsense on the internet ahead of time, threatening nonsense that made the couple of women who were trying to organize that event, and even me, who's you know, an old practice hand now, frightened us. And the women who were organizing were frightened enough that they raised money and hired private security. And they also felt the need to press the library for security as well. Mm-hmm. My own position was that I don't like that kind of security. I don't want that kind of security. So, so there were some things to work out ahead of time. But I thought it was very, very important that we achieve that discussion. And Mm -hmm. we did indeed fill the house. There was at least 300 people there. There was a lot of talk about it ahead of time. It was a very, very successful evening. So Megan gave her speech challenging the ideology. And my preference was to talk about what's this fight got to do with feminism, got to do with women's liberation. So those videos exist, so people can think for themselves what they think of the two speeches, but certainly both speeches were very well received, and the crowd of 300 people made it very clear that they did want to talk about this.
9: There's been a lot of excitement generated, I think, by this event. I think so, too. I have one final question to ask you. A lot of young feminists are feeling a lot of despair over the fact that, you know, longstanding women's organizations aren't supporting their interests anymore. Uh, The lesbian community has largely gone underground in a lot of places. What advice would you have for young activists who are just starting to form their own communities? And what kind of tools do you think that second wave feminists have to offer to these young women?
7: Great question, the subject of the book. First of all, I think we are not done with consciousness raising. So my first advice to any young woman who is not happy with the world she's living in is get in a small group of women, start telling the truth to each other about your lives and start listening hard to each other about what do you have in common because that will give you a picture of the patriarchy that you're living in. And out of that, you may well see possible strategies and things you need to learn to be able to enact those strategies. Women who are living in the industrialized West still have the possibility of taking control back of women's centers, transition houses, and rape crisis centers. And while I don't think that's the only way to work, I think it's still an important way to work. But each one requires a specific strategy. Um, In the States, many of those places are now warehouses, run by gigantic hierarchies that are very tough to fight, but some are not. In Canada and in England, in other places in the industrialized West, it's still possible to take control of what was built by other feminists and has fallen into the hands of a small hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how you do that is different in each place, but it usually involves getting on the board, taking over, start fighting for the things you should be fighting for. So that's one thing. Um, I don't talk about building community, although I think community is important. I talk about building the movement. And building a movement is different than building a community. I think our movements have to have community elements to them. But they're fundamentally movements. And that means the politics comes first. What works for the politics comes first. And uh, you don't try and be everything to everybody or the nicest girl in town. You try and be the toughest girl in town and the most effective girl in town. And there's a lot of learned lessons in the second wave that are still available to young women trying to get started. I think, you know, it's notable that the second wave feminists had a commitment to nonviolence had a commitment to egalitarian practices within our groups. We didn't always succeed. We didn't often totally succeed, but those were important principles. I think it's important if you're doing any kind of service-based work to draw into the decision-making bodies, women that are the same as the women you're serving, the same in terms of class, race, and sex. And I think you can't afford to be ignorant anymore. The One has to actually learn what neoliberalism means, has to learn what movement means, what the history of this second wave movement has been, because there's corrections to be made. There's things we need to do better. But there were great lessons on how we might do things. I think that the inclination toward welfare state after the Second World War gave the second wave the possibility of building a movement by using services. And that strategy may not be available to the next generation. So I don't think we should give up what we built so easily. But I do think there'll need to be new kinds of formations and new strategies that deal with this very conservative world and very neoliberally economically controlled world. Clearly, the protection of the environment and the interference with capitalist destruction of the environment is a critically important issue at the moment. And so far, the groups that are involving themselves are not dealing with feminism. But, you know, a feminist intrusion into that process is important. But so is the anti-imperial inclination. We have to deal with the development of China, the American empire collapsing, all those things are relevant materials for feminists trying to figure out what to do. The thing I would advise against is doing all your politics on the internet Mm -hmm. doesn't work. It's not a good place for thinking, for struggling, for being inventive at all. And people say too much, forget that you're living in a surveillance state. So I would advise against that. But everybody's got a locale. Everybody's got things that can be done in your own neighborhood, in your own city, that connect to the international struggles. And that is what I think made Rape Relief so successful. It took very seriously, organize locally, think globally.
9: And do it face-to-face as much as you can.
7: Do it face-to-face because that's the only way there is to do it. Also, you're, you raised the point integrity. I think you don't always know who's watching, and you don't always know what the impact will be long-term. So you want to build a history that you're glad to have exposed. So
0: speak out, speak over, speak under, speak through the noise. Speak loud so I can hear you. I want to know.
3: This. 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 This is WLRN. 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 Women's Liberation Radio. Women's Liberation Radio News. Women's
0: Liberation Radio News.
6: fact that the white majority countries of the developed world seem to lead the so-called feminist movement, they have very few organizations and individuals who provably help women and girls escape violence, which is the basis of patriarchy and male power. The Vancouver Rape Relief Center in Vancouver, Canada is almost unique in its staunch commitment to the feminist principles and mission it started out with decades ago at the height of the North American feminist movement. Nothing like it exists in the United States or the United Kingdom. At least no organization with the same long history, services, goals, and political liberty. That Vancouver Rape Relief has survived this long, despite all the attacks from men the Center has fielded in over 40 years of operation, might be called miraculous. Except it was no miracle. Just the result of committed feminist women working together and standing their ground even when it would have been much easier to fold. It's a tragedy that there isn't a Vancouver Rape Relief Center in every single city and town in the world. The one thing women and girls need more than anything in the hellscape pervaded by male violence that we live in is a safe place to go, run by women who truly care about what happens to all of us. Without that safe space, where do you go and what do you do if you're living with a man who beats you? Or if you've been raped. Without women like Lee Lakeman, Laurel McBride, Johanna Dan Hertog, Janet Torrey, and Teresa Moore, what hope does the feminist movement have? Without the courage to create something tangible that helps women and girls and the courage to stay the course when we're attacked for our creations, we have nothing but our hurt and rage and good ideas that don't change much for us in daily life. So many of us who came after 1960s and 70s feminism often ask ourselves and each other, what do we do, what can we do for this movement? How can we actually make a difference and not just pay lip service to our politics and debates with anti-feminists? We may have some notion that the women who built physical spaces for women and girls in the 20th century had some magical quality, some wisdom or knowledge, or ingenuity or bravery that most of us don't have, and if they would only tell us their secret, we might be able to follow in their shoes. But the truth is, the feminists who started shelters, ran underground abortion networks, created support services for raped and abused women and girls, and whatever else, were no different than us and had no more than we have now, sometimes even less. They did not have all the answers or the money or the support they needed when they started their various projects, and they certainly didn't have approval from men and anti-feminist women. What they did have was a passion for helping and liberating women, and the conviction necessary to try things, even though their efforts might have failed. And yes, they had a hefty dose of courage, but that doesn't mean they were any less afraid than many of us are today. Vancouver Rape Relief is not just a women's shelter with a rape crisis hotline. It's a female force. It's a haven for true feminists where we can go to speak and listen to each other. It's an example of what feminist work can accomplish. An example of the fact that feminist values and goals don't change with the times, but are as consistent as male violence and sexual terrorism. In a society that has abandoned genuine feminism for male-serving politics, masquerading as progressivism, Vancouver Rape Relief is the last outpost of women's resistance. The recent attempts made by men and their handmaidens to shut down this refuge for female victims of male violence, to intimidate the women who run the center into submission, to sabotage the free speech of women who were invited onto that private property by its staff, says more about these people than anything else could. These are the most brazen and unashamed misogynists of our time. These are the violent male rapists and female rape apologists that real feminists are eternally at war with. It doesn't matter how they vote or what the rest of their politics look like. It doesn't matter what lies they tell about supporting and caring for women. Their behavior against the women of Vancouver Rape Relief and the feminist women who gather there to discuss our movement proves beyond all doubt that they are the very same misogynists and anti-feminists who have been attacking the shelter since 1974 and who attack any woman or girl who dares to publicly denounce the agenda of the gender cult and the paid rape industry. They are not feminists, they are not allies to women and girls, and they are not any better than the religious far-right. It is a universal rule that any space women and girls create for ourselves must be defended if it is to survive. Defended against both destruction and invasion. So much energy and time are wasted on this defense. Energy and time we could be investing in our movement and communities and relationships with each other. But we have to continue to defend what's ours. It's the only way we get to keep anything. The only way we maintain our agency and power and keep feminism alive. We defend the bodies we live in every day. We must be willing to defend our spaces, and our movement, and our feminist speech with the same resolve. The women behind Vancouver Rape Relief are the kind of feminists we should all aspire to be – brave, committed, active, and persistent. They do more for women and the feminist movement in one day than the hundreds of thousands of fake feminist liberals who hate them have done in the last few decades. Honor these women, protect them, help them. However you are spiritual, through prayer, meditation, art, or some other way, hold these women in your practice and offer them your strength and love. WLRN is thankful for the Vancouver Rape Relief Shelter and for all the women, past, present, and future, who keep it alive. Thanks for listening to WLRN's 34th edition podcast on the Vancouver Rape Relief Center on this Thursday, February 7th, 2019. I'm Sekhman she Until next time, stay the course. The women of WLRN would like to thank our guests this month for sharing their knowledge and stories of
4: organizing with the Vancouver Rape Relief Shelter. Thank you so much to Laurel McBride and Lee Lakeman for speaking with us. Thank you to Dominique Christina for granting us permission to air the period poem. Thank you to all the women who work together, women who heal, and women who fight back. This is Julia Beck. Thanks for tuning in to WLRN.
1: If you like what you are hearing and would like to help support our feminist community radio, please visit our WordPress site and click on the donate button. In addition, if you are interested in joining our team, Send us a copy of your resume at wlrnewscontact at the rate We are always looking for new volunteers to conduct interviews, write blog posts, post to our FB and other social media pages, and do other tasks to keep us moving forward as a collective of media activist women. Thanks for listening. This is Damanthi signing off for now.
9: And this is Robin Long.
1: Thanks for tuning in.
9: Our program for next month will focus on women who are differently abled and how the feminist movement should and can include all women. Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of the month, so look for it on Thursday, March 7th. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when each podcast, music show, and interviews are released, please sign up for our newsletter on the WLRN's WordPress site. Stay strong in the struggles, and thanks for listening.
0: This is Thistle Peterson signing off from another edition of WLRN's Monthly Handcrafted Podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and SoundCloud, in addition to our WordPress site. And please remember, if you donate to WLRN this month, your money will go to a $150 fundraiser to buy WLRN, our own hard drive, as a step in our long-term goal of creating secure spaces online and off for feminist media work. It's easy to donate. Just go to our WordPress site and click on the PayPal button. Thanks again
3: for tuning in to Feminist Community Powered Radio. And this is Jenna DeCordo, WLRN's sound engineer and producer. Our monthly podcasts are always crafted with tender, loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide. Thanks for your support. We would love to hear from you. So please share, like and comment widely.
0: For the patriarchal kiss How will we find What needs to be shown And then after that Where is home Tell me Where is my home
1: Cause gender hurts